What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another fantastic episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother, Danny, and I'm here with my big brother, Sean. There's a door that takes you to another dimension. Once you step through it, there's no return. I've already crossed it, <laughs> Danny. Don't panic, everybody. That is from the movie, okay? Just don't panic. Don't panic. Welcome back to International Movie Month. Last week, we traveled up north to Canada and tackled David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. This week, we're making our way down to Mexico to talk about 1987's Don't Panic. Are you ready to tackle Don't Panic, Danny? I'm ready. I'm trying not to panic. <laughs> I've mentioned before on the show how I started to collect Vinegar Syndrome titles a few years ago during their twice-a-year Black Friday sales. In between some of those sales, I started picking up their monthly bundles when they were full of films I wanted, or if the films just happened to interest me. On a couple of occasions when I did pick up these monthly bundles, there were these Mexican horror films included by the director Ruben Galindo Jr. Now, I've never seen much in the realm of Mexican horror, so I was pretty interested and excited to check these films out. The horror genre is never short on surprises, even for the most ardent fan. So I wound up owning all three of the films that Vinegar Syndrome released from this director. Cemetery of Terror, Grave Robbers, and Don't Panic. I really enjoyed Cemetery of Terror and Grave Robbers, but I was never able to watch Don't Panic before my life got thrown upside down and my collection has been sitting in storage ever since. But as luck would have it, Don't Panic is the only film of the three available on Shudder at the moment. And what better time than our international horror celebration is there to finally watch this movie. Thank you, Shudder. Yeah, thank you very much. One of the things that intrigued me about this movie is that people call this an homage to A Nightmare on Elm Street. I've also seen that Ruben Galindo Jr. has said that of his movies... This one specifically was made to appeal to American sensibilities. I think you have to take into account that Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street series was at the pinnacle of its pop culture penetration around the time that this film came out. So of course this movie would emulate that series the most in an effort to appeal to those American horror sensibilities. I do think calling this film an homage is a bit of a stretch. Plus the similar elements of which there are plenty, are so scrambled up that it doesn't resemble much in the way of Nightmare on Elm Street. It also stays true to its Mexican roots, which adds a whole other fascinating layer. In Mexican culture, there's a deep faith and belief in the Espíritu Santo. There's a strong belief in the supernatural, as well as a pervasive fear of the occult. These cultural beliefs and fears are captured so well in all of Ruben Galindo Jr.'s horror films, as well as most Mexican horror films in general, I would imagine. I mean, no matter the film, you're almost always going to find some religious, supernatural, or occult undertones, because horror, at its best, is always a reflection of the fears of the culture producing it. And it's one of the reasons you can't simply write these Mexican horror films off as knockoffs. Because they are unique. I'm not saying they're great. I'm more than willing to admit my personal affinity for bad films. It comes with having seen too many films. 
and wanting to consume even more, undoubtedly people's mileage will vary. But let's jump right in and see what kind of mileage we do get out of. Don't panic. Emphasis on your mileage may vary. <laughs> but before we start, just wanted to say you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Fraternity. That's at Fraternity. Go over there, follow us, like our tweets, retweet us, DM us. We'd love to interact with you. We have an email, fraternity at gmail.com. That's fraternity at gmail.com. Send us questions, comments, anything at all. We'd love to respond. And we have a YouTube channel. Go over to YouTube, type in Fraternity. You'll find our YouTube channel where we're uploading previous episodes of the show. Every Wednesday, those go up. And they have a bit of a visual treat to them. So you just have to go over there, hit subscribe, give us some likes, and see what those videos are all about. And don't forget to leave those ratings and reviews. And we just may read your review here on the show. You know, if you're enjoying our International Horror Celebration Month, that's the perfect time to leave a rating or a review. So thank you so much for listening. And with all that said, let's jump right into the movie. We meet Michael on his 17th birthday. It's his first birthday since moving to Mexico City. We watch as he says goodbye to his guests. And one guest asks if this is his first birthday in Mexico and says, You'll get used to it. Now, as to what's so different about a birthday party in Mexico isn't really clear to me. Whatever that <laughs> means. Yeah, it looks pretty standard for a birthday party at the age of 17, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks like uh, some kids came over, trashed the place, threw cokes all over the place, <laughs> and then left. We get our first similarity to Nightmare on Elm Street here when we meet Michael's alcoholic mother. She's pouring herself a stiff one at the top of the stairs as she asks if all of Michael's friends have left. We'll also come to learn that Michael has an absent father consumed with his work and separated from his wife due to the strain on their relationship. So the similarities are as subtle as that, but some will be far less subtle as we get deeper into the film. As Michael locks up, we get a nice fake jump scare when he's surprised by his best friend Tony and more of his closest friends pop out, including the one-brow wonder, Alexandra, <laughs> the girl of Michael's dreams. So should we discuss this unibrow, Danny? Let's talk about the unibrow, because it's, believe it or not, the unibrow is one of the more poignant talking points of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fan of the unibrow. And this is one bushy monster she's rocking here. You know, I don't want to be mean to this actress because she's not unattractive. She's cute. And honestly, she rocks the unibrow in every way she can. But it's just hard not to stare. I think even Michael stares at it sometimes. Yeah, the problem with this unibrow is it's distracting. Like, it should have got a screen credit. <laughs> <laughs> If it's on screen, you're gonna look at it, right? That's what I'm saying. Every time it's there, you just can't help but stare. I'm sorry, but if you didn't want me to stare at the unibrow, shoulda plucked that shit. <laughs> the villain in this film is a demon named Virgil that's gonna possess the body of Tony and wield this mystical dagger. 
I think if he stabbed that thing into Alexandra's unibrow, that dagger would probably crack in half. <laughs> I think you're right about that. All right, well, let's not get too mean. <laughs> Again, I don't want to be mean to this actress. She's not unattractive at all. It's just... She just has a caterpillar on her face. She's, got, she's just got a little fuzzy-wuzzy <laughs> right above the, her eyes. <laughs> all right. So Michael's friends surprise him with what else? A Ouija board for his birthday. And we get some nice product placement as they use Coca-Cola cans for candle holders here. Yeah, there's a lot of Coke cans in this film. (laughs) After some hesitancy from Michael and wisecracking from Tony, the group decides to play with the Ouija board and Tony calls upon Virgil, but the planchet doesn't move. And it isn't until one of the friends suggests asking the Ouija board, who's got a thing for unibrows? <laughs> that Tony moves the planchet and aims it directly at our jerry-curled hero. Michael gets pissed and says, why don't you tell them who Virgil is, huh? Why don't you tell them Virgil's the devil? And finally, Michael's mom interrupts the party and shuts it down. And Michael's friends leave. But before the next morning, we see the planchet twitching out before leaping from the Ouija and hitting the wall. So something spooky's going on here. Spooky happenings. Possession. The next day we see Michael arrive late to school, and he bribes the security guard with a dirty magazine to let him on campus. This is one strict district, though, and Michael finds himself locked out of class. Lucky for him, he finds Unibrow in the hallway. She's late for class also, and the two of them decide to go have breakfast together. But what's supposed to be breakfast ends up turning into the most epic first date ever put to the cinematic screen. (laughs) There's balloons, there's ice cream, there's photo taking. Anything you do on a date that's special, they do it here. Michael and Unibrow. Such a special date. Yeah, the only thing missing is a moment where Alexandra has a scoop of ice cream fall off of her cone and Michael offers his to her. But I will say my favorite bit is when Alexandra lets go of the balloons and Michael watches them float away with this look on his face like it's the coolest thing he's ever seen in his life. <laughs> Those balloons are some uh, deep wow. s- symbolism, okay, Sean? <laughs> I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah, and then you get Michael staring at the unibrow while she eats her ice cream in a real creepy manner. Like, what's the matter, bro? You never seen a girl eat ice cream before? (laughs) He's like, yeah, lick that spoon. Lick it. (laughs) After the date, Michael visits a hungover Tony who has his head shoved in a toilet. And Tony apologizes for the Ouija board stunt before Michael tells him about his hot date with Alexandra. And Tony ends up giving Michael a rose to give to her next time he sees her and to tell her, as long as love exists between us, the rose will never wither. Quite poetic here from Tony. That's a good friend. True bro. He wants Michael to get that unibrow. (laughs) After that, we get a really cool nightmare sequence when we see Michael asleep in bed and a bloody hand punches through the ceiling and reaches down towards him and blood is dripping down onto his face, and he awakens startled before grabbing his temples in pain as we see his eyes become red. Yeah, I like the uh, nightmare sequence here with the hand coming out of the ceiling and the blood dripping on 
Michael's face. <laughs> it's good stuff. And I find in these early moments in the film are some of the only ones where I feel kind of interested in the horror elements. I feel like the more we see and learn about Virgil, the less interested I become in the film as it goes on. Right, right. That's a fair statement. You could also say this is their Freddy pushing through the wall moment, but it also goes to show how the elements are so different that it hardly resembles the original thing. You could also easily argue against that comparison, but what you can't argue is how bitchin' those PJs that Michael's wearing are, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Michael has this set of PJs that he's gonna wear for about a good 45% of the movie, (laughs) if not more. Right. And why does he wear them? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think the latest age you wear these types of pajamas is, well, let's just say definitely not 17. I think about seven. (laughs) (laughs) They must be be Michael's favorite PJs because he's wearing them every single night. I don't think he washes them. We are going to see him running around in these things for an obscene length of the movie. I think it's fun to crack some jokes, but I also think people have accepted this look now. Like, the last thing we want to do is come across as pajama-phobic. <laughs> I know that Vinegar Syndrome actually sold these pajamas on their site. What? No way. <laughs> I, 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 want I honestly pair. wouldn't mind having a pair. I would so... Get the Michael PJs. (laughs) Hey, look, I don't know if they're still available, but I have to admit I'm for it. (laughs) Dude, I'm totally down. Halloween costume. That's a great idea. Dye my hair blonde. Get the jerry curl going. (laughs) Oh, man. That's a a step too far, Danny. (laughs) Back at school, Michael gets his little heart broken when he catches another student kissing on his unibrow. We see him moping in an empty classroom before Alexander shows up and explains the situation. And Michael ends up giving Alexander the rose, and the two of them run off to Michael's house to have some underage sex in his race car bed. <laughs> Damn it, you stole my joke. <laughs> oh no. I was gonna say I was gonna say the only thing missing from Michael's room is a race car bed because he his room is lined with these boyishly (laughs) posters of race cars oh man i love that we're on the same page with this because the biggest travesty in this film is that michael doesn't have a race car bed (laughs) it's truly a tragic failure to commit right (laughs) and then when he's talking about like how he just loves racing because i like to just feel fast you know you feel free it's like what is he talking about And then Unibrow is, like, interested in the cars, too, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, you know, this film does come up short in multiple ways, but none are as egregious as the lack of a race car bed. Later that night, we see Michael back in his PJs laying in bed, basking in the glow of getting his nut off in Unibrow when his eyes turn red. (laughs) I like how he... So Michael nutted and then put his PJs back on. (laughs) He's got a big ass bed, too. That's like a king, dude. (laughs) We see Michael begin to experience 
what I would call telepathic remote viewing as he witnesses someone enter his friend Debbie's room while she sleeps. And meanwhile, we watch as he attempts to crawl to his bathroom. And Michael bears witness to Debbie getting cornered before getting stabbed to death by this unseen killer. And I love how you can see they're literally just spraying blood on this actress. <laughs> yeah, it's not convincing at all. It's like, okay, why is the blood coming from over there? <laughs> right, it's like she's the one getting stabbed. Why is blood coming from the opposite direction? <laughs> <laughs> it's good, cheap fun, if you ask me. And we do get an excellent shot of her falling to the floor with that giant ornamental dagger sticking out of the top of her head. I really do like that. Yeah, that's definitely uh, makes up for the blood spray is the dagger in her forehead. Yeah, we also saw another guy getting stabbed briefly the first time that Michael's eyes turned red, but it was so quick. And it only gets a brief mention a bit later, but we might as well mention... She's actually the second murder in the film, but the first one is blink and you miss it. Yeah, it's so weird because the first one, yeah, it happens in like five seconds. It's just one little shot and that's it. And then like the next day at school, no one's even talking about it. It feels so disconnected to the rest of the film. But anyway, all you really need to know is that the people getting murdered are the friends that were at Michael's birthday party earlier. Yeah, if you look at, like, Nightmare on Elm Street or some of the early 80s slashers that would often focus on teenagers and their group of friends, this one fails to have any reaction from the group of friends. It's like they don't realize everyone's dying around them. Yeah, there's, like, no consequence for the deaths that are happening. It's just like, okay, I guess the story's moving on. <laughs> I guess Michael's too tangled up in that bush. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the one down there. Oh, no. We see Michael's mom pounding on the bathroom door, asking if he's all right, as Michael washes his face. And he looks up in the mirror, only to find his face covered in blood. And there's blood pouring from the faucet. I like that faucet shot with the blood coming out. That's some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, good nightmarish little bits here and there. And eventually these illusions vanish, but Michael's eyes remain red, and he tells his mother he's fine before returning to bed. And at breakfast, Michael witnesses this face emerge from television static as it warns him that Christy is going to die tonight. So we kind of have a combination of Freddy emerging from the wall mixed with the bit in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 where he emerges out of a television set. But once again, this film takes those elements and twists them into something entirely new, if you ask me. It's certainly new. Does it make sense? That's uh, your call. <laughs> Not sure why uh, Tony can communicate through television static, but <laughs> we'll roll with it. Yeah. Let's, your brain isn't 100% turned off. You left it in the on position. <laughs> One homage or element theft that doesn't quite stick the landing is in this next bit. Michael sits in class when the teacher is suddenly speaking directly to him in a strange voice, warning him again of Christy and her impending doom. The teacher warns him that he must warn her and get her out of the city before midnight. 
And we then see a blood-dripping Christy sitting at her desk laughing at Michael as blood pulls up around her and runs across the floor. This is definitely a wink and a nod to Tina's body bag scene in Nightmare on Elm Street. And yet again, this film creates something new, but I feel they come up short on this one. Plus, this one is a bit too obvious. I don't know. I like this one. Uh, I like that she's just covered in this blood and laughing at Michael. I don't know. It's fun. It really has no purpose being here, I guess. But eh, I I enjoyed it. Probably one of the less egregious ones for me. (laughs) Right on. Yeah, I don't think it's terrible. And I do think it's fun. Like I said, like of all the comparisons, though, I think this one is just too obvious for me. And again, this is where it's a little weird because he's looking at someone who's still there and she's the next target where in Nightmare, it was like, there's an empty seat because your friend is dead and there she is in a body bag. You know, we talked about the lack of consequences. It's like, maybe that should have been Debbie in her empty seat instead. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Also, Michael really starts giving off like Jesse from a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 vibes. We, he's got his shades on. He's stopping talking to everybody. He even blows off Alexandra at lunch. And she takes him for a one hitter quitter here and just tells him off and runs off. This relationship has just been accelerating. I mean, they've known each other for how many days now? Three. <laughs> <laughs> Alexandra. (laughs) We see Michael sitting in bed watching television when Alexandra calls and he answers, but he can't bring himself to speak and just hangs up. And we then get this great toy card tossing poster ripping tantrum that Uh. it peaks when (laughs) Michael punches a cup full of pencils clear across the room. (laughs) He backfists that pencil holder. Why they decided to show this in slow motion, I will never know. <laughs> I'm not crazy. Yeah, I like to call this one the weakest freak out in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's a good name. Yeah, so Michael's ripping his posters in half. He's throwing his laundry across the room, whipping the laundry basket, throwing pants at the wall. I mean, no damage here is really done. I guess except for that pencil holder. But even then, he gave it a a bit of a weak punch. (laughs) They really didn't want to wreck this room. (laughs) It just, it's so goofy. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. And then he gets interrupted by a news report on the television. And the reporter is speaking about the murder of Debbie. And they also mention the other kid who got murdered. And this is where Michael realizes he isn't crazy. And we briefly meet. My personal favorite character in the form of Lieutenant Velasco. Now, the line deliveries for this character are only rivaled by some of Michael's that are coming up. (laughs) (laughs) He isn't in the movie much, but when he's there, this actor and dub actor possibly, I'm not sure if this guy's dubbed or not, but they make the best of their scenes for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Michael remembers the warnings about Christy and hops on his bike through the streets while wearing those dinosaur PJs still to go warn her. And he runs into her dickhead brother, John at the house. And this is the same guy who also has a thing for girls with unibrows. So he doesn't care for Michael and blows him off. 
And as he shuts the door on Michael, we see his eyes turn red again. And we see Christy working in a hospital. So that's where Michael heads next. And he sneaks past the front desk worker and attempts to find her. We get some good POV killer shots as Michael rides in the elevator. And soon after getting off the elevator, he's stopped by security. And he attempts to explain the situation as we see Christy being pursued. Now this guard does call the lab, but hangs up before Christy can answer. And she still attempts to answer the phone, but this gets her killed here. And we see her get stabbed multiple times in the chest as the security guards drag Michael off. And he delivers this great scream after some terrible line reads. He's like, leave me alone. You gotta save Christy. Please listen to me. And my favorite, Danny. <laughs> no! <laughs> I have to talk to Christy Higgins. <laughs> Michael has this Hispanic accent that, let's say it drifts. <laughs> <laughs> like it comes and goes. Yeah, the first half of the movie really doesn't have it at all. And then pretty much starting from the middle of the movie to the end, it just creeps in and it's just there. And it's just jarring. It's like, wait, what? What's going on here? Leave me alone. <laughs> I have to talk to Christy Higgins. Please. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Eventually, we see Christy's body fall out of the lab in front of another nurse who screams out. Great blood-splattered nurse makeup. I dig it. I feel like I'm not a fan of the way they do their POV shots here. I find it just not that interesting when it goes back and forth between Michael and he's blinded because he's having the visions of what Virgil is seeing and he's seeing the killings. But I just don't find anything that Virgil does to be particularly cool or interesting here. <laughs> like, the most entertainment I get is just watching Michael deliver his lines poorly. <laughs> <laughs> These are very short-lived POV shots, too. Like, they're not sustained for very long moments in time. And often they're the type where the actor or actress is staring into the camera, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, nothing spectacular, you know, it's just pretty simple stuff, and yeah, it just doesn't really do much for me. Right on. Yeah, the guards respond to the scream, and Michael makes a run for it, and he ends up in the lobby as we see the obvious killer coming down the stairs, and he runs from the killer before we get the big reveal of it being Tony. It's pretty obvious, though, that Tony's dealing with a bad case of demonic possession, but it isn't spelled out for us as such just yet. But the voice is a dead giveaway, right? He's like, Michael, remember me. <laughs> then this chase ends when Michael makes this epic dive out of a window and the power of those dinosaur PJs is just on full display. Like, this is an Olympic dive. <laughs> this might be the only dive through a window. Where the actor was wearing PJs. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to double check on that one, but I think Dope Panic has that record. Look, perfect form. I'm holding up a 10 on that dive. <laughs> Barely any splash. I think he landed on his feet on the other side and kept running. And he was barefoot. We see Michael sneak back into his room. But his mom catches him in the window. And I'm pretty sure she mistakes this for a suicide attempt. 
Especially when she sees what he's done to his room. <laughs> and this is where Michael pleads for her to listen to him about Tony. It's Tony! He's gonna kill me! It's Tony! He's gone nuts! <laughs> <laughs> she calls the doctor and the doctor winds up doping him. He's like, I don't want that in me. <laughs> but Michael is put fast asleep. And of course, his father arrives at the same time. And so mom and dad run off to argue. But John sneaks in and abducts Michael right underneath their noses. <laughs> yeah, I actually like that Michael's parents are so busy bickering and fighting that John basically can just walk in, kidnap Michael and walk out. <laughs> <laughs> Michael wakes up in a field the next day with John threatening him with a shotgun. And John nearly blasts his nuts off before questioning him. He tells John that, I tried to help Christy. And it's Tony. Tony's killing people. <laughs> and John decides to not murder a fellow 17-year-old just yet. And we get a brief but brilliant Lieutenant Velasco scene before we join Michael and John as they go to Tony's place. And they immediately find a cross above his bed has just been thrust into the wall. A nice little callback to Nightmare on Elm Street. Those pesky crosses above beds, you know. Sean, this is the saddest moment in the film. You know why? Why don't you tell us? I think I know why. <laughs> Michael loses his PJs. Oh, man, that's, that's tragic. I think that's a half-star deduction. What do you think? Yeah, come on. We had to have those PJs throughout the finale. You can't just take them away from me when I was getting so attached. Yeah, this is the end of the road for the pajamas. You will be missed. But while they're also there, they try to stick around and wait for Tony. We see uh, Lieutenant Velasco go to the school and question Unibrow on the whereabouts of Michael. He's like, he ain't hiding in that thing, is he? <laughs> <laughs> He tells her to contact him if she hears anything that may be of assistance. And then back at Tony's place, the face emerges from the television static, and it informs them that it's Tony, and his body is possessed by Virgil. It's Tony! <laughs> <laughs> Michael isn't buying it, though. He needs to be convinced that it's Tony. So he repeats what he told him when he gave him the rose to give to Alexandra. He tells them, Robert's next. And in order to stop Virgil, they need to take the dagger from him and use it against him. So Michael and John find Robert passed out drunk in his underwear. <laughs> they drag this poor guy to the car, just like that. But he comes to and asks them to get his pants. And Michael goes back for the pants as John puts Robert in the car. And then John leaves Robert alone out there to go shop for some reason. Yeah, to go get a pack of cigarettes. When I'm pretty sure he knew it was pretty close to midnight at this point. <laughs> and he had to know it was close to the end of the movie. I mean, you really need three packs <laughs> of cigarettes? <laughs> we see Michael start to have another remote viewing spell. And we know Robert is not long for this world. We see him sitting in the back seat as Virgil just reaches in all nonchalant through the window and slice the dagger across his neck. Nice throat slit here. This movie's full of records because this might be the slowest throat slit on screen. <laughs> yeah, just a nice slow drag. 
And then Robert is just like, uh, uh, and then just falls over and dies. Still in his drawers. We see John <laughs> return to the car and take a seat. And he's oblivious to the fact that Robert is now a corpse behind him until he notices some blood on his fingertips. And Michael tries warning him just as Virgil sits up in the back seat. And he is now looking a lot more Freddy Krueger-ish, right? Yeah, this is about where Virgil makes the full transition into Freddy Ripoff. <laughs> yeah, it's gradual, but it's, it's here. And it's going to become even more apparent. He even tosses out a one-liner here, if you want to call it that, along with a demonic laugh. It's not worth quoting. It's not even a joke. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. A lot of what Virgil says, not even a lot. I think 100% of what Virgil says falls flat. <laughs> and I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or scary or what. <laughs> None of the above, huh? <laughs> Virgil vanishes as John gets out of the car in search of him. And we get a short game of demon versus shotgun whack-a-mole. Before John ends up putting a shotgun blast right in Virgil's chest, dropping him. But of course, when John goes to inspect his handiwork, Virgil's gone. And for some reason, John stuck his head through the car window and ends up getting stabbed through the chin with this dagger going all the way up into his skull. And we can even see a nice view of the blade visible in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> nice and gory. Good shit right here. Somehow he manages to pull that blade out himself before tossing it aside. And after that, the car starts and Virgil attempts to run Michael over as he runs away. He ends up getting stopped by a couple of cops just as the vehicle pulls up on all of them. And the cops inspect the vehicle and find the bodies of John and Robert. But at the same time, Michael takes this opportunity to escape. And we get this great scene of Michael running through the streets to go find Alexandra. And we keep getting visions of all the dead friends. All the makeup is so basic in this movie. I'm sure you could accomplish these effects with kits you could buy at a Halloween store. But I personally <laughs> enjoy it. Like, I like these shots of all of them doing weird shit. You got this really terrible musical score happening right now where it literally says, I'm Tony for some reason. I'm Tony. Yeah, let's talk about this. 80s as hell theme song for Don't Panic here. Don't panic. Totally doesn't fit at all with the tone, but it's just so goofy. You gotta love it. Yeah, it's just one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Worse than this music, though, Danny, is this really out of place dinner scene. Because Michael (laughs) goes to Alexandra's house. And we see her parents are upper class as they wine and dine a senator. And it's weird. It is weird and really out of place. I think this has my favorite line in the film where one of the guests is like, so is your business going to be worldwide or nationwide? (laughs) (laughs) And then Alexandra's father's like, it'll be worldwide. Like, (laughs) talk about the most generic, basic uh upper class talk you could uh write here (laughs) yeah all of this shit is ridiculous and it kills the momentum very slightly because if i'm being honest this movie doesn't have a whole lot of momentum (laughs) but uh, (laughs) 
we are fast <laughs> approaching the end right now. And then there's this. The scene ends when Michael starts having his visions and can see through Virgil's eyes that he's looking at all of them. And he draws a gun and starts firing all around the room as everyone ducks for cover. These bits of the movie, you know, they feel way more comedic. And I don't think they were meant to come off like that. And you're right. This whole scene just feels so out of place. It definitely kills the momentum, if there was any. <laughs> so yeah, ultimately it's just here to uh, get Michael and Unibrow back together again for this finale. I think my favorite part of this scene is how Michael shoots up the dinner, abducts the daughter, and then says, I'll explain later. <laughs> <laughs> They end up stealing a car and they drive off to go find the dagger. And Michael explains how the demon Virgil possessing Tony is killing everyone who was present when they played with the Ouija board. And they're the only two people left. So they stop and search for the dagger, quickly finding it. But Tony appears. And at this point, he's Freddy Krueger, Mexico, right? (laughs) (laughs) Frederico. And look, there are plenty of Freddy clones out there. The Nightmare sequels gave us the notorious trope of the killer delivering one-liners after dispatching his victims. And most Freddy clones were more in that realm of ripping off Freddy, like in the realm of the personality, to varying degrees of success. Like, the Sleepaway Camp sequels did a good job of it. I'd tip a hat to the killer in Slumber Party Massacre 2. Then there are the not so good ones, like there's a killer in Doom Asylum who he's probably the Freddy clone that I would rank the lowest because his one liners are these weird 80s conservative jokes that don't make sense. And he also rips off the look, not as egregiously as they do here, but here they really take the look and the voice, throw in a few bland one liners, but. I guess they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the problem is, is like, there's nothing to go off of Virgil. You know, we don't get any insight into who he was or who he is, what his goals are. Virgil is the devil. He's the devil. That's all we get. (laughs) You know, he's just this blank slate. So it's like, yeah, what else were they going to do except make him just... Literally be Freddy, Mexican Freddy. (laughs) I do want to say I'm a fan of Doom Asylum. (laughs) I know I was shitting on the villain, but I really like that movie. But let's wrap up Don't Panic. And is it any surprise that we end up in some boiler room looking industrial building for our (laughs) final battle with Virgil? (laughs) Where else are you going to go? It just makes sense. Michael sends Alexandra away so that he can face off with Virgil alone. And he really lets her have it, doesn't he? Get out of here! Go! (laughs) Oh, jeez, Michael. (laughs) Chill the fuck out. He enters this boiler room. Let's just call it a fucking boiler room. (laughs) And shit is flying all around. Yeah, apparently Virgil has telepathic powers now, all of a sudden. Because he's just flinging shit all over the place. Yeah, and Michael is hiding from the piss-poor one-liner spouting Virgil. He takes a moment to fondle this massive gash on his leg before he makes his final play. And he calls out Virgil and leads him on. 
and he gets smashed in the head by a giant chunk of concrete that would kill an average man, but Michael is saved by the 80s epicness of his blonde jerry curls here. <laughs> I'm also not sure how, but this movie manages to rip off Freddy vs. Jason over 10 years before its existence, <laughs> because Michael sets up Virgil and ends up getting him crushed under this giant piece of equipment, but... Before he can finish him off, because we know you have to use the dagger, Virgil pulls the old, hey, it's just me, Tony trick. (laughs) You did it. You did it, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Michael falls for this, dropping his guard and the dagger before Virgil drops the act and levitates Michael. Then inexplicably, Alexander shows up with Lieutenant Velasco. And she grabs the dagger at the urging of Michael. Get the knife! (laughs) And just in case someone has been sleeping on the Nightmare on Elm Street references, we get a few uses of the word bitch thrown in here. Oh. Get away from me, bitch. This is the worst, the most egregious, like, Freddy copies when he's just calling her bitch (laughs) at the end. It's like out of nowhere. Again, it's like, who is Virgil? Like, who is this guy? Frederico. (laughs) (laughs) Frederico. So Unibrow delivers the fatal blow to Virgil, and Michael collapses to the floor dead as well. And Alexandra cries over him, pressing that caterpillar on her forehead up against his face as we see Tony return to normal and die. Lieutenant Velasco has a great line, too, where he's like, he's gone, baby. (laughs) 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 lastly we witness michael's burial and alexander tosses the withered rose that michael gave her down to his casket and wouldn't you know it it unwithers itself danny lands upon his casket bringing a hopeful and joyous smile upon alexander's face and that's the end of our movie is it happy i mean michael's still dead i don't know i think we're gonna have to talk to some mexican scholars on this one (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) i like it a nice freeze frame before the credits of unibrow and if we're being real that was the star of the show yeah the unibrow i mean when you think about it had no slip-ups no bad lines no cringe dialogue perfect performance i heard it was a bit of a prima donna though it had its own trailer (laughs) (laughs) all right danny give me your final thoughts on don't panic Don't Panic is a sloppy movie. It's a mess of a film. The more you think about it, the more the flaws just pile up. It's a testament to why good storytelling can allow you to turn a blind eye to perceived flaws. But when you have a messy story like Don't Panic, all the flaws just become so much more apparent. But you know what? Fuck all that. This movie's fun. Watch it with a friend. You'll have a good time. You'll have plenty of laughs. I can promise you that. It's a mess of a film, but you know what? It's fun to quote. It's fun to watch. I can't hate on it too bad. And, you know, that unibrow deserves an Academy Award. (laughs) All right, man. Well, let me start off by saying that I fully admit that I love bad movies. With that being said, I think this movie falls in the range of just okay. Like, it's definitely like, watch it with a friend, have a few drinks, because it's a low-budget mess. Yeah, it's 
it's not so bad it's good but it's not so bad it's bad it's like somewhere in between it's like not really that watchable and it is funny and has funny moments but it's not extremely funny (laughs) it's just okay right like i think you hit the nail on the head there i mean it's funny when it isn't trying to be and that is just a lot of fun i think the best word to describe what's wrong with this film though is flat there's one too many moments in the runtime that just fall flat like i think this movie deserves a recommendation but it has to be under the right circumstances i definitely think this is one for the weathered horror fan who's looking for something they haven't seen yet if you're just getting into horror i would tell you to pass yeah or if you're just into bad films right. go ahead and check it out but uh yeah if you're looking for a good horror experience definitely gonna want to look elsewhere i think in a way though this film somewhat reaffirms my love for film in general like we don't discuss behind the scenes on the show but i do love that stuff and i love when things go wrong as well as the creation of movies in general i can respect anyone who manages to put their finished project on the screen even if it isn't the greatest thing ever made There are times where bad movies can be just far more interesting than a competent movie would be. You know, especially when a competent movie winds up being bland, that's a cardinal sin. And a bad movie ending up bland is a death knell. But you rarely get that. You know, you always find something ridiculous in its presentation, story, or whatever went wrong that will at least get you to the credits. Yeah, for Don't Panic. It's those pesky PJs. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure what stars will need to align or what circumstances it's going to take, but I don't think this is the last time I'll watch Don't Panic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, alrighty, man. Did you find a favorite kill in Don't Panic? Yeah, I got a favorite kill for you. It's simple, short, and sweet. It's the knife through John's chin. Very good choice. Very good choice. There's nothing really special about this kill. It's just cool to see that dagger go through his chin and the blood is pouring out of his mouth and from under his head and you do see that tip of the dagger in his mouth. That's pretty much it. (laughs) That's all I got to say about it, really. (laughs) Yeah, I really dig that. I think the dagger in the mouth sells it. Yeah, of, of all the kills, that one just sold it for me that one just felt the most competent i think that was the one where i was like you know what that was good you know you you can have that one the rest of the kills eh you know we talked about it earlier you had the stabbing in the head but before that you know they were obviously spraying blood on her (laughs) and then I'm struggling to even think of the other kills oh the the christy kill i didn't think was that good either Yeah, there is a good throat slit, but yeah, I see what you're saying. For me, again, the throat slit, it just, it was almost comedic how slow it happened and how Robert just fell over like nothing. (laughs) With all that said, Danny, I'm going with the murder of Debbie for my favorite kill. (laughs) All right. You know why, too? Besides the kill and besides some slip ups in the effects department, This scene has some pretty good editing. I like the cuts to her feet as the blood is splattering down on them. And long ago, 
when we first started this podcast, we talked about delivering the goods. And I mentioned how sometimes blood is enough. It is too bad that we see through the magic and can literally see the blood being sprayed at her in frame. But at the same time, there's a certain charm to it for me. And we also get the giant dagger sticking out at the top of her head. And that's a thumbs up from me. Good stuff. Good choice. All right. Last but not least, favorite scene. You got one? Oh, I got one. And I don't think it's for the reasons that you should pick a favorite scene in a horror (laughs) film. Awesome. But my favorite scene is the hospital scene. Just that whole sequence of... You know, it's so bad. It's such a mess of a scene. But it's just, again, it's Michael running around in his PJs having visions of a killer delivering these awful lines. (laughs) It's just, I think it's the peak of the fun in the film for me when I'm watching it. It's just so ridiculous. You gotta love it. You gotta enjoy it. You gotta turn your brain off, okay? That's the moment when your brain fully turns off. And you realize you're watching a bit of a bad film and you're just brains off. You're along for the ride. Awesome. I have to be honest. I didn't think of one and <laughs> I, I have two. I'm going back and forth with in my mind. Like again, my f- uh, favorite scene is like not what it means, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I agree. Like it's hard to find a favorite scene in this movie. Like, there's, there wasn't something that I was like, whoa. Now, I will say, I appreciate the action around the car with Virgil in his almost fully Freddy mode. And you do get two cool kills right there in the little cat and mouse where he's popping up in different places. The other one weighing on me was the hospital scene. And I'm going to agree with you 100% and go with that too. Because that is the pinnacle of the PJs. And we get those great lines, and I just want to do them again. Let's do them. No! Listen to me! We got to help Christy! I need to talk to Christy Higgins! (laughs) No! Listen to me! Oh, man. Never change, don't panic. Never change. Well, I hope you liked listening to us! (laughs) This has been Fraternity! That is a wrap on Mexico. And we've only got one week left to go in our international horror celebration. And we're going to a place that has some of my favorite films. And this is the only film this month that I've actually seen before. I'm not going to tell you the film, but I will tell you. Get ready, because we're going to Japan. Hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.